Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Good evening, listener. You're listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. On tonight's edition, we invite you to leave behind your safe reality and descend with us into the frightening depths of the most terrifying imaginations with an audio adaptation of frightening fiction about substance-fueled spirals. I'm your host, Steve Taylor, And tonight I'll be your guide as we traverse the dimly lit corridors of your darkest dreams. Joining us tonight to help bring to life the frightening fiction of Michael Botur is voice talent Nick Goroff. Now, get your ticket ready, take your seat in our theater of the minds, and brace yourself. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Our tale this evening is written by Michael Boter and is performed by Nick Goroff. They call it the Erring Cupboard, the room in which counsel is given to former doctors suspended for breaking down on the job. You see, our main character is a stuff-up, a failure, on probation from the review board and doesn't know if he'll ever be allowed to walk the wards as a medical doctor again. Because he fell in love while training, fell in love with Maya, fell in love with partying, and they both fell in love with the deadly drug fentanyl until one of them fell in too deep. And if you haven't guessed, This story features heavy mention of addiction, addictive substances, and may be too much for our listeners in recovery. Listener discretion is heavily advised. Now, without further ado, I present to you 
kiss you while you sleep. Six seven four six W. Synopsis: I call it the airing cupboard, the room in which I counsel former doctors suspended for breaking down on the job. You see, I'm a stuff up. I'm on probation from the review board and don't know if I'll ever be allowed to walk the wards as a medical doctor again. A failure. Because I fell in love with training. I fell in love with Maya. I fell in love with partying. And we both fell in love with deadly drug fentanyl. Until one of us fell in too deep. Dr. Georgian whose young brain is so big it seems to enlarge her head, has been experiencing a condition she claims is nymphomania, though that's a non-clinical term best avoided. The closest clinical term which could be described Dr. Jordan's decision to have sex with patient in the physiotherapy spa pool is hypersexuality. Or call it plain old depression. Not that it's easy to get a doctor of 25,000 hours experience to admit she has depression nor any other flaws. Dr. Georgian is reciting the short story I made her write from her tablet. Creative writing is a tool I utilize in the airing cupboard to get my broken doctors to look at their problems objectively. The airing cupboard is the church hall in which my kintsugi gather around me on Tuesday and Thursday mornings to air their angst, to release, to glue their broken shards together with gold. A reminder that they once hurled themselves against something hard and broke apart. Dr. Georgian keeps stopping, putting her tablet down and looking at me to see if I'm satisfied yet. I can tell she's staring at my black eye, thinking I'm the one who's fucked up. The truth is we're all fucked up. Every doctor in the room finds it hard to admit why they're here, airing out their guilt. The head of the review board has ordered every one of my patients to complete therapy sessions in St. Luke the Evangelist Community Hall. The alternative? Never work in medicine again. Doctor, I gotta head off in a couple minutes, Dr. Anson complains, rearranging his shaky, shivering limbs, sitting up and flexing his cramped back. A person gets shakes and cramps when their body chemistry decides it can't exist without the 17 carbon atoms, 19 hydrogens, 3 oxygens, and single nitrogen cherry on top, which, when artfully arranged, make up the hydromorphone we know as dilated. I can barely grow a beard and haven't lived long enough to get a driver's license, but I know opioids. I know what Dr. Anson is going through. Tell us why you got a black eye, he says. The group nods along with him. You weren't always a therapist, were you, Doc? We shared, now you share. How come you get beaten up all the time? If you leave early, Dr. Anson, that's two hours you've completed with me, not three. And that's on you. Guys, you have to do your 99 hours the same as me. Undoctored and 99 for you, Doc. So we heard. I hold my hand up to say, be patient. I roam the circle of broken doctors as if we were playing duck, duck, goose. For years, you brought the dead back to life. 
the highest training for the highest salary and for the highest stakes. You learned you were infallible. I learned you had to bury feelings of inadequacy. You became more skilled than 99.9% .9 of people in the world. But because you skipped the part of your development where you became at peace with your human flaws, you fuck up. Deep down, you want to get expelled from the Board of Registration. You hate triple shifts. You mess up, and they chastise, berate, and discipline you. But they don't sack you, because they don't want you to quit the hospital, because then they would lose power over you. So, the Board of Reviewers sends you here, because you're a sensitive person trapped in an insensitive profession. And you don't know a way out. Their bulging eyeballs tell me they're not used to being confronted like this. Like Maya's eyes when she saw I was going to heaven without her. But my broken doctors are too sensitive. Too sensitive is why a tightly wound Dr. Georgian fellated an elderly heart surgeon at his retirement function. Too sensitive is why hospital reporter Dr. Choi started tweeting the salaries of 143 hospital board executives before security tackled him off of his office chair. Too sensitive is why Dr. Chiamanda sewed her cell phone inside a patient because she was sleepwalking during the day because she had been up all night on a treadmill because the staff marathon team convinced her that a single ounce of body fat was unacceptable. Dr. Anderson hoarded breast augmentation photos, Dr. Mona burgled an ambulance, and Dr. Patchouli tasted the blood of an eight-year-old boy because it was Runal, rarest in the world, sacred, precious. Dr. Cruz hoards stainless steel tools, Dr. Rude steals Salisbury steaks from patients' meals. I look at the old cuckoo clock on the oak-paneled wall of St. Luke's. We have two more broken doctors to read their simple stories before we can conclude our session. If Supervisor Dr. Selby Chan finds out about my broken docs, I've yet to do exactly 99 hours of therapy within three months. They'll be asked to redo their hours from scratch. I'll have to redo my own hours too. As they plead with their eyes to find out whether the session is really over, whether they have advanced another 3% towards returning to the wards, I come close to blurting to them how I broke and became Kintsugi. I know they gossip about me. Final thought of the day, I say, changing the subject. We all feel we deserve to be hurt, but do we actually deserve that? Write me a 20-line acrostic poem in your books, please. Discuss Thursday. Be good to yourself this week. You can go. I shelter in a corner of the room. Dr. Chan has left a voicemail and the courteous, cold voice he uses to tell high achievers they are unsatisfactory to him. He says the review board is ready to see me, to see if me and the Darkside Council can be glued together with gold my broken docks. People with student loans close to $200,000, most of them. They're offering to clean my house and wax my car so long as I can get them category one restricted permission to conduct medical duties on hospital grounds. Well, 50% of them that is. 
Dr. Chan is looking to accept the immediate return of 50% of broken doctors to practicing, so long as the savings they bring to the board outweigh the cost of lawsuits. The board will read out their list of cracked clinicians they want back in service. I'll counter with the doctors, I think, are ready to return. And as he strokes his grey wizard beard at the head of the table, I'll tell Dr. Chan and Dr. Clara Georgian's clinical depression is attributable to a hormonal malfunction from a damaged pituitary gland, which at first hemorrhaged estrogen and cortisol. Then I'll book Dr. Georgian an urgent brain scan. When I finish checking my voicemails and fantasizing about the fight ahead, my broken docks are still in their chairs, their arms folded. That busted eye, it's turning green, Dr. Abdil smirks. The hematoma occurred 72 hours ago. There's 10 minutes on the clock, Doc, and you're limping too. How come you're so hurt? You have to tell us. I walk on thick, resistant legs to the end of the warehouse, walled with wooden bins full of fruit. We're so deep in the warehouse that seeing what's going on from the street is impossible. I fist bump a guy from South Sudan, with black skin that seems to glow blue. I've heard he grew up in fighting rings, breaking other kids' faces when he was five. After he got his refugee stuff approved, he was actually a medical student here, but couldn't get his student visa extended. So now he's fighting to make his living. He's tossed away his passport. He doesn't even resemble his photograph anymore, because the bones of his face have been dented like an eggshell. Maya first brought me here to school. She got a thrill out of this place. Maya always wanted to be smashed to pieces. She felt guilty for being statuesque with blonde hair, sparkling blue eyes, a ballet dancer's body, terrific parents, and a hard-to-achieve degree that put her on top of a lonely mountain of expectation. I'm told this is space for me in the cage in 30 minutes, that I can warm up, watch fights, whoop, roar, and throw fruit at the cage. The three skirmishes I watch are over in four minutes, that's how hard people hit each other here. Two deadlocked women, skinny, with strange wobbling breasts, claw at each other. One has been practicing Muay Thai, evidently, and cripples the other with a knee to the jaw before putting an armbar on her opponent till she stops twitching. The referee looks out from the cage, lasering through the audience until his eyes met mine, but I shake my head momentarily. I can't help her. I'm not allowed to be a doctor here. Two gang members, one a man-barrel with a stomach that wobbles like an ocean, the other almost seven feet tall and reeking of cigarettes so bad I can smell him from outside the cage, grapple till they collapse, sleepy and slippery. The tall one vomits blood. A janitor limps in with a mop and bucket. Then, Epic and Mega, the big, bald twins who run the show, find me in the audience. Epic taps my shoulder with a finger as hard as wood. Just checking in on you, pal. I'm going up tonight. Definitely. You positive you want to do this again? Are you a little vulnerable? Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. 
If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I was comfy for too long. I need the herd. The man who shuffles into the ring from the opposite side of the cage is an obese ball man with pale patches across his tits. Those are blooms of a fungus known as Pityrisis variscolor. I want to tell them. His body's constant sweatiness provides fertile ground for that stuff to bloom on the epidermis. I want to put him on fungusil. I want to get my prescription pad back. You'll have to keep your body's doctory as possible while applying it twice a day over 28 days, my friend. Dab it on like so. Best after you're freshly showered. And I'd like to recommend a dietitian too. An asteroid slams into my brain. Everything is moving in slow motion. His fist has gone around the side of my daydreaming head and smashed my ear. He crosses the ring and slaps his wobbling arms around me. I'm Dr. Unk, exhausted and nauseous. I want to cry and collapse. Tinnitus, I'll never hear again. I glimpse Sudan in the crowd with his little finger on his lips whistling. Throw in everything he's saying, wriggle, squeal, scratch, bite. Come out of this, Doc. I don't have kids or a cat to go home to. My parents are dead. All I've got is my airing cupboard and my clients. So I growl back into the fight, headbutt the fat man, and both our noses explode because I have to be punished. After all, when you put someone in an anesthetic coma, they lie on edge between here and gone. I took Maya to the edge because she told me she wanted to see the view, right up on the edge, all away, millimeters away, and right on the razor blade. And then she was gone. And for that, I deserve to be hurt. Fifth year. After four years of lectures, exams, and parties, and trying to hold on to being like all the other 22-year-olds, my class and I split up across the country to do our residencies in real hospitals. The fifth year, shit got real. No more sneaking away from our tutors to go and smoke. No more acting like we didn't have to look after ourselves. I got assigned to Middlemore. The place was a factory. 1,000 beds, 30 theaters, 3 sites, 5,000 staff. Half a million patients a year. And there was me, the bee in the hive regretting I didn't get out earlier. I and some other kids moved into this crumbling old red brick dormitory in Otahuhu, 
with fancy arches and stained glass. We were close to a Samoan butchery, a Rarotongan bottle shop, and an Afghani bakery. We helped out on the wards. We sat in on consultations. Old ladies stopped us on the street for praise, as if we were real legitimate docs. Old gambling addicts bought us beers and praised us docs. My people and I limped into the tavern every morning at ten for karaoke and to suck shots from hundred milliliter syringes. My first week in Med Dorm, I discovered my popularity wasn't just a high school phenomenon. I'd smashed every exam at school, and I played center in the A-team for the inter-school soccer and still found time to get merit or excellence on all my exams and keep friends and learn about sex with a group of safe, clean kids. When people found out anesthesia was my major, they knew I was lining myself up for an extreme climb with some of the highest standards, keeping people on the live side of death. Challenging, sure, but I'd never settled for anything less. We tried to get through a week at a time. We had a party to balance every exhausting assessment. In the halls, we had to prove ourselves by doing an IV stand, while the boys on scholarships from Tehran and Tokelau whooped it up, everyone wearing scrubs and disposable smocks. The girls went as hard on their IV stands as we did. The IV stand was like a keg stand, except there was an intravenous delivery with three litter bags of $10 wine hanging off of it. Dr. Jody, Dadu, did a tour of the dorms early in the night to check we were still alive, but instead of scolding us, he just doctor-opped a bunch of cricket jokes and made a conversation about Shane Wayne versus Brian Lara and kissed the girl's cheeks and called them Betty. It meant daughter. Johnny Krishnan told me. That's what we were to Dr. Jody. We were his beloved kids. He would tisk and chide, but he would forgive us for the occasional blowout. Dadu Jody trusted us. This really tall girl, Maya, was strong enough to hold my legs vertically all by herself while I went to work sucking on a liter of wine. I could hardly concentrate. I stared up at her tree trunk legs and her muscular chest. I puked before she could tip me the right way up, and the fizzy, bubbly wine puke bile went into my nose, and they had to let me down so my airway wasn't blocked, and as I writhed in a lake of bile, the acronym for the procedure for a blocked-up airway flashed behind my eyes like a billboard. Puked-up chunks of pineapple pizza stuck to my dick, hanging out from my meager gown. Maya stood over me, guzzling Jägermeister and laughing at my corpse, but the boys' slaps, pats, and noogies told me I was in. I'd passed the piss-up test. They hauled me up and applauded. I crowd-surfed. We raced each other to be the first to name the twelve stages in a ventilator inspection checklist while necking twelve shots of rum. An hour later, I was asleep in the bathroom on a pile of moldy laundry. I was wasted, but not wasted enough to override the switch in my brain that told me to wake at dawn and annihilate everyone who thought they were smarter than me. Especially Maya, with her ernf-fail comment every time I got the Incas and Malleus earbones mixed up. 
When the dawn alarm dinged on my phone, I stood, washed my dick in the basin with hand soap, and reconstructed what had happened last night. Maya on the floor behind me looked like a dropped marionette. I kneeled over and studied the movement of her slumbering lips. Her esophageal tract was cramped. I adjusted her head and brushed a sticky curl away from her brow. I hovered my lips over hers. I nearly kissed her while she slept. She was in paradise, though. Wherever she was, she would be happy. No triathlons, no supervisors, no swatting or blood types and allergens and lipid oxygen bonding precipitors. No senior doctors in her dreams were yelling at her hard enough to shake her hair. No guilt, no shame, no hunger. Just unconscious bliss. Instead of kissing those lips, I draped a towel over her, stepped into fresh beach shorts and jandals and a Hawaiian shirt I found on the floor of some dude snoring in a bedroom with three naked med students piled around him. I walked to my grand round, picking bits of bacon out of my ears. Dr. Harkonwal Jody, godfather of anesthesiology, was in the front of the meeting room illuminated by the projector, asking everyone if they could explain the TCSC of having an airway blocked. TCSC. Total Combined Status Circuit? No. Consequences. Everything in anesthesia is a consequence. I stuck my hand up. Everybody stared at me as I answered. Kids in class. When the esophagus is blocked, like even just 10% is going to stop you being able to aspirate your carbon dioxide, I ventured. So... That CO2's gonna line your bronchioles, like cholesterol or something. CO2 makes the muscle in your airway all thick and saggy till it almost closes. Real bad if you're obese. Um, you said we're supposed to flag it as a code orange compound complication in pre-op? Mr. Delight! Dr. Godfather clapped and grinned so wide I saw a flash of gold. CO2 every child. Two particles of oxygen and one of carbon. Dear friend, the oxygen we need in the air we breathe. Tell me something, child. Tell me something really important. Tell me how many one-day international test caps M.S. Donny is having, child. I picked a shard of vomit from the yellow stubble on my lip. Uh... 156? 158. Nerd. Somebody threw a drink bottle against my head. Insufficient! Dr. Jody slapped his desk. He grinned wickedly. 156 milligrams of sodium pentothal patient stable. With two more milligrams, we are taking the patient to 158. Mister, is the patient stable? Patient critical, I mumbled and hung my head. Maya limped in towards the end, just when Dr. Jody talked about the rhesus negative tests absorbed opioids compared to the RH positive blood. She showered, put on a miniskirt and heels, and even wore her stethoscope. A waft of fruity shampoo went up as she sat in front of me, blocking me with 
broad, sporty shoulders. Amaya was blocking out the presentation, blocking the adulation from our godfather. Down in front, I whispered. She half turned her head and sneered. Fuck you. Make me. She winked out of the corner of her eye and said in a low voice, Get to the top of Mount Aspiring before me. I'll fuck you. I'd never found anyone as competitive as me until I met Maya. We were obsessed with one-upping each other. A dancer since the age of four, Maya was two inches taller than me, even without high heels, which she put on at least once a week when she dragged me to another social. We'd drive up to her dad's yacht club and suck oysters out of the shell and massive swish glasses of Chardonnay. Then the next night, she'd have box fit with a couple of the girls from a rheumatology group and go clubbing afterwards, and I'd limp behind her, unable to match her shot for shot, and watch in a corner with folded arms while she zigzagged on stage, her huge hips bumping against her friends. There were only 168 hours in each week. Still, she seemed to fit in 50 hours of tramping, 50 hours of volunteer hearing and vision checks on poor kids in the ghetto, 50 hours of partying and fine dining, and not to mention 50 hours networking with the Silverbacks, so she would have her first hospital career lined up after she graduated. Lined up before me. That's what it was all about with Maya. She liked me. As I was a threat she could stay ahead of. We had sex in a long drop toilet buzzing with flies as soon as we got back to the hut where we'd left all the other med students who couldn't keep up. The first time we kissed was with blue numb lips on the summit of Mount Aspiring, shivering, trying to find each other over the screeching wind that sucked the flapping jackets off our skin. Every other time we made love after that, there were three of us present. Maya, me, plus an enhancer. Some tingly lubricant or a bottle of schnapps or a pill or a canister of nitrous oxide she'd smuggled in her pussy. In our tenth lovemaking session, Maya pulled out a bag of weed and a pipe. We knew we could both hold out for longer when we were stoned. That was part of the race. The time after that, Maya slipped a bright, shiny 80-milligram circle of Oxycontin between my lips, and I couldn't stop falling through the clouds. She used her strong arms to hold me inside her, while turbulence tried to flap my body away. I was skydiving towards the landscape of her body, and my ears hummed, and when I slammed into the mattress, I came so hard it felt like my heart was being sucked down into my stomach and shot right through her. I panted for ten minutes afterwards. By twelve minutes, I got Maya to use her heart check monitor to confirm my BPM was coming down. The oxy made us move slowly and forget everything as soon as it happened. Maya found her heart check amongst drawers and drawers full of stuff she'd swiped from the wards. Stuff she didn't even need, like speculums, scalpels, and marrow scrapers. Babe, I gasped clutching the white sheet against my heaving chest. Oh my god, that's gotta be the best shit on the planet. Ernt, that's a fail. Carfentanil is the best shit on the planet, 
She slowed her breathing so she wouldn't seem as exasperated as me. You have got to get some. <laughs> I wish. Ten mils will get you high. Fifty milligrams will kill you. Only Dr. Jody can get you a script. Before I knew it, she'd pushed a pill inside me again. A different one this time. A little gray square, like a Lego piece. Maya put her hands on her ankles and wrapped them around my ears. Her velva looked like a ripening orchard. Her thighs were huge pale petals. Clitoral hood, clitoris, labia minora, urethral opening, vaginal opening, perineum. That one was dilated, by the way. It'll get you toasted, she sang, laughing, knocking a bottle of champagne off the side table. She grabbed a hunk of my hair and mashed my face into her orchid. Hurry up already. I'm way ahead of you. I was a ton of bad things. Drunk on exhaustion, addicted to coffee and cycling after punishing myself for staying up till 2am memorizing chemical compounds and their antidotes. But I had to let everyone know I wasn't a narc. Well, I was and I wasn't. I was on top of everything. I could dob Maya into Dr. Selby Chan's board of review in a heartbeat, or party just as hard as Maya. Either way. I showed the world only what I wanted them to see. I would drink six jugs at a grassroots rural medical club garden party and still wobble home on my bike alive. I would hold my liquor deep inside me, metabolize it, beat the intoxicant, piss it out, glug another triple shot espresso and bike another 20 miles. I passed the breath tests. I put blankets on trainee interns sleeping shirtless and shivering on the clubhouse balcony. I watched over them while they slept, making other people comfortable, tucking them in. It was all part of being superior. Nothing was better than outlasting Maya, especially when she'd had a screaming match over the phone when her mother wouldn't release any more money from Maya's trust fund, and Maya would try to drink herself into a coma to stick it to her mum. With no idea what to do outside the wards, bored in our apartment, we would race to see who could pour a bottle of tequila into 25 shot glasses and down it all. If you spilled a drop, you had to lick it up. I loved it when Maya staggered around on her hands and knees and then collapsed. I would get a cloth and wipe her face, and then use a glass bottle to keep the seven cervical vertebrae on her neck straight and whisper in her ear, Beat ya. She would try to kill herself, and I would one-up her by keeping her alive. Then I would kiss her while she slept. Sixth year. From the moment I locked my bike until I left the hospital, my days were about waiting for disaster to strike, and then feeling a sting of excitement or disappointment as another day went disaster-free. I was amazing at my job, and a career would be waiting for me as soon as I graduated. With their pathetic three-year degrees, the little squeaky anesthetic technicians always joked about us sleep doctors being like air traffic controllers. To press the plunger of the syringe, the plane takes off. Watch the monitor for hours, putting your nose to the lips of the patient. Plane lands. Time to wake up, sleepyhead. 
applause occasionally if Dr. Jody read out the printout and saw our patients had avoided tachycardia. Like the other gazes we get rid of when we exhale, almost all the anesthetic passing through a person's blood separates the good compounds from the lungs and aspirates through a patient's cool lips. The best part of the job is a free snifter of something special, and on the job, too. If I leaned in close to a patient's nose, I could toke on a sneaky snifter of relaxation when the surgeons weren't looking. Just between the patient and me. Our little secret. If Dr. Jody wasn't trailing behind me demanding reports on cricket or cardio, I would lock myself in the dispensary so I could sign out drugs without being interrupted. Patients half-used drug bottles on my trolley supposedly headed for the incinerator, personal bottles up my ass. Maya and I would bump into each other in the corridors and walk funny, wide and uncomfortable like John Wayne. Howdy, partner. We'd wink at each other, smile and kiss as if we had enough gear to give us a good day off. Didn't matter if I was sitting in on the surgery, doing pre-op checks or post-op, filling out timesheets or just sitting through grand rounds. As little as half a tab of paracodine would melt the anxiety away. Just hearing the names of the drugs on the patient's notes made me relax. They sounded divine. Dilaudid made me think of eyelids snapping open and irises dribbling color from a hundred crayolas left in the rain. Isoflurane sounded so laboratory pure that I wouldn't be responsible for whatever it did to my body. The hard industrial dare of desflurane. The stay away I'm powerful of sevaflurane. Demerol made me imagine crisp, clean white things. Vecuronium sounded like a Roman noble. Respiridol, a breath of fresh air. Fentanyl sounded like a fountain of bliss. Maya and me were only in the apartment at the same time a couple days a week, but she would always leave my meds taped to the bathroom mirror if she scored first. I thought about fucking other girls, but there wasn't anyone who spiced up sex like Maya. Besides, any other girl in the world would judge me for the way I chose to relax. If Maya and I caught up for a box of noodles before the movies, we would run codes as we cycled to the cinema. What's code purple, hotshot? Failure to respond. Aspirate. What's code square, then? Allergic reaction to augmenting. Code black. Suffocating. Who was the first batsman to score a double century in ODI? Sachin Tenduklar, bitch. You sound just like Dadu. <laughs> Lol. It was a rainy Saturday, and everybody on the planet was watching the World Cup when Dr. Jody presented me with a lab coat with my name embroidered on the breast pocket. I slumped against him like we were embracing, lay my head on his shoulder and thanked him. I had so much morphine in my blood that I couldn't open my eyes wide enough to make eye contact. You are sleepy, BT? Sorry, Dr. Jody. Just trying to keep up with you. He patted my shoulder. 
You need to rest for the first 11 this Saturday, no? We take Canterbury District Health Board. We kill them. <laughs> we hugged and laughed. Be good to yourself, my boy. Unwind. Last night, Maya had put a red light bulb in the bedside lamp, shot me up with 20 milligrams of propofol, and pulled me into some red, sweaty swamp I didn't come out of for days. I am unwinding, Doc. I promise. I ran the shower and used my ten private minutes to push a tiny 16-gauge needle between my hallux toe and index toe, singing distal, proximal, we won't forget them all. My medicine cooled my boiling bones, and my body thanked me straight away. It told me I had needed this all my life. I'd never even had alcoholism in my family tree. Still, as I watched the shower water beat on my skin, and I drank it and gargled it and tried to snatch steam fairies from the air, giggling like kindergarten, there was a voice crawling around in the back of my skull, whispering, This has always been in you. Dilaudid is more powerful than any gas, and propofol is more powerful still, but only fentanyl will get you into heaven. The shower steam danced with the helices of my DNA and popped, fizzed, slithered into my toes, wriggled into my balls, and pushed on my prostate gland. I fell backward into the bath and delighted in the pink food coloring swirling into the water, pooling in my belly button. I staggered back into the sober world when I heard the crack of a whip, and I sat upright. The strobe light switched off, and the 200 frames per second I'd been watching slowed, and I decided the folded-armed woman in front of me wearing a scowl and trembling lips was Maya. She was mad and upset because I cracked my skull and lay in the bathtub till the hot water ran freezing and I'd turned purple, but really pissed her off was I'd done drugs without her. And she had a shift beginning in ten minutes, and she was going to have to go to work cold, fucking sober. Flames were shooting out of my cheekbones where she'd slapped me, but I was somehow dry, as if she'd slapped the shower off of me. I was in a white ward, a hospital. God damn it. And there was a cotton bandage around my skull. Maya, immaculate in a $600 dress her mum had paid for, leaned close to my ear. Tight, tucked-in sheets meant I couldn't move my arms. Her lips brushed my ear as she pretended to kiss me. It would be the first kiss in weeks. We never made love anymore. Just injected each other's spines and writhed in our damp bed, masturbating, and slept for days. She squeezed my scalp. I'm going to pay you back for this, you little prick. Dr. Jody entered, glowering, shaking his grumpy musk all over. Maya kissed and squeezed him extra hard. Fucking try hard. What's the process for discarding vials of fentanyl once drawn, eh? Speak, boy. You are naming for me 12 risk factors when administering epidurals to an epileptic. Who is the vice-captain of the Bangladeshi, hmm? Who's thrown more overs, Yasir Shah or 
Kuldipyadev. He shifted his gaze to Maya. You, miss, you are taking care of me still? Oh, we've spoken, she hissed through her fangs. Next time he does something this stupid, he knows he could die. Seventh year. Patient Priyanka M. had trouble relaxing the lower half of her body to let her baby out. I elbowed the nurses aside and rubbed topical anesthetic in a delicate rainbow pattern across her back, whispering susurrations. As I bent toward the floor to pull the wide-gauge needle from my kit, I licked the lidocaine cream from my fingers, quietly shivering with ecstasy as the beautiful cocktail of sodium, nitrogen, barium, and boron soaked through the palatoglossus into my lingual nerves, my trigeminal nerve, my hypoglossal nerve, and the glossopharyngeal, from the lingual to the vagus tickling my throat, warm and cooling all at once. I stood. The sleepy grin I gave the team was drunken, cheeky, slutty. I licked my tingling lips, told the frightened-looking nurses to steady the patient, and directed the gracefully curved tip of the two-horn needle expertly into the patient's lower thoracic nerve. Patient Priyanka gasped and squeezed the sides of her cot. Quickly, I pushed towards her corda inquina and set up the rigging. I'd practiced on Maya. We'd made love with tubes sticking out of her back, crunching as we writhed, wriggled, and shuddered. I'd just managed to push in the loss-of-resistance syringe and feed the milk of the poppy inside her dura mater before I let go of the rigging and dribbled some instructions to the nurses to plug the patient's release button in so patient Priyanka could squirt heaven inside herself. Walked crisply out into the corridor, leaving the yabbering clamor behind me as I rounded the nearest corner, tugged on three, then four, finally five covered doors, before I found one as inviting as a hotel. Walls, two meters apart, with a paint-splattered aluminum basin to sit on so I could tear off my sock, jam a needle between my big and little toe, tickle the medical calicanceal nerve with a little drink of bliss, and plunge the needle's depressor down so hard I blasted all the way up to my sciatic nerve. I rolled hard into a pile of buckets. Final year. Maya fell asleep on a flight of stairs and tumbled down and cracked her femur. They gave her a blood test, and the nurses looked at the results and ran and got Dr. Jody. When she woke, she was a druggie. Nobody trapped in a plaster cast in traction. Dr. Jody was scribbling on his prescription pad, but was angling it protectively away from her. He even shunted his chair back a foot from her bed. He wrote her a script for morphine and she glared at the pathetic quantity he was signing off. Don't you have anything stronger? Dr. Jody told me later that she would have lunged at him like a vampire if she hadn't the cast on her leg. I agreed it was a shame what had happened to her. If I could get my hands on the bastard that got her hooked. I was losing my family. I tried to hang out with the boys, but everyone was dispersing to Britain, Canada, or the South Island. They were off being paramedics or rural doctors or lecturers. Some of them even had admitted being a doctor was too stressful. 
they quit. And now the worst drug they did was cholesterol. At home, Maya shot up and watched TV all day. She saw this thing on Discovery. A tiger was sedated with a hundred mils of fentanyl. She took up the challenge. She dosed as much as a tiger, then as much as a dolphin, then as much as an Indian elephant. Smash it, she said one day, just as I was about to go to work. Crack it open, she pointed her scratching knife at me. Immediately! There was nothing around the house to crack through the plaster cast on Maya's leg, so I went out and bought a spade with a good sharp edge. I did a few practice whacks on the arm of the couch and the coffee table. I don't think I should do this, I told her. Then how the fuck am I supposed to get to my femoral vein, genius? I... I need a hit first. She nodded and made a hurry-up swirling motion with her index finger. I injected myself and shot her up through the crappy, saffirous vein on her foot to appease her while I got ready for the big injection. Then I was ready to take off her cast. The first few whacks with the spade cracked the plaster. The last whack cut into her muscle. Maya cried, peed into her dressing gown and bled on the couch. She didn't want a bandage, though. Maya begged for another squirt. I dialed for an ambulance, and they rushed her in while she cried, Carafin, Carafin, cuff, sliding between alive and dead. Her rebroken femur, weaked, cracked, and sharp, had punctuated her femoral artery, and her leg was blue and fat, blood leaking inside her like a garden hose. Dr. Jody babbled in Hindi. His eyes glinted, wet and shiny as he wailed, wept, and chased the stretcher down the corridor. The only word I caught was beaty. Fentanyl won't do it, Dadu, they told him on the edge of the operating theater. It has to be the strong stuff. He looked at me with hurt. Dr. Jody was our top physician, but he'd let his children cling to his legs. We were dragging him down. With apology to the god, he sighed, withdrew his pad and signed the authorization. I raced to the dispensary, got the car fentanyl, and on the way back paused with a vial in my hand, licking my lips, just staring at the prize I was holding. Twenty-four carbons, thirty hydrogens, and a couple of nitrogen and oxygen atoms are positioned on the compound just so. Symmetrical and beautiful. I was standing outside a giant white clean toilet. I could lock myself away and go on holiday right now. Escape all this. No. Resist, man. Patience. They said there were less than ten minutes to get Maya's leg opened. Fresh blood put into her, and the severed lower section of the artery rerouted. Eight people were in the room, half of them just healthcare assistants mopping up as Dr. Jody clamped the upper half of the pulsating artery. Maya gasped and tried to sit up. People without time to gown upheld her down while she kicked their nice shirts. Anesthetic! Ten milligrams only! Bastard! Fuck! I'm on it! I'm on it! I plugged her in 
pushed the trolley to the corner, tubes everywhere, and stood there with my nose against the harp monitor, watching my eyes play in the air, shuddering against turbulence. I depressed ten milligrams of carfentanil into her tubes, and her vitals dropped, lurched, and dropped again. Her face went from purple to white as she lost a full liter of blood, then one and a half liters. Nobody paid attention to me. Everything was shouting in his shoulders. I bent over her and kissed her lips goodbye. I squeezed the depressor and pushed into her every last drop of the fountain of ecstasy she'd been waiting for. Twenty mils. Thirty. Finally, fifty. Clear and pure. Carfentanil slid into her bloodstream as her plane dropped silently out of the sky, and her vitals plunged to nil, while I sucked the loaded breath from her lips, and the nurse began bellowing at me. What did you do? What did you do? So, broken docks. That's my story. I'm not allowed back on the ward. Yet. I have to help you. All of you. I must prove to Dr. Chan that I can watch over my broken doctors while you're awake. And if you trust me, I'll be there while you sleep. I hope you enjoyed Kiss You While You Sleep, as written by Michael Boter and performed by Nick Goroff. You can find more of Michael Boter's work right here on our very own network. Voice actor and 2016 Evil Idol champion Nick Goroff's talents can be found on our very own Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, as well as on past episodes of the Simply Scary podcast. You can also join Nick on his YouTube channel, Wizard of Cause. On that note, be sure to check out the other shows we offer on our network. We have Scary Stories Told in the Dark with Otis Jiry, airing Sundays. Fear from the Heartland, featuring horror stories brought to you from the Heartland, airing Wednesdays. Eric Peabody's Horror Hill, a podcast dedicated to some of our deeper and darker tales. We hope you check him out. And Drew Blood's Dark Tales airs Fridays, featuring some Southern down home horror. Now, our weekly descent into the depths has just about come to a close. But before we go, I'd like to take a moment to thank you for joining us for tonight and remind you to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave Chilling Tales for Dark Nights a five-star review and a kind word and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram if you haven't already. And of course, subscribe to us on YouTube where you can find an archive of our work going back to 2012 and consider signing up as a patron at our website, ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com to show your support and get all of our content ad-free. I'm your host of the evening, Steve Taylor, and it's been a pleasure. Tune in again next week when we once again turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Sweet dreams, listener. Sweet dreams. <laughs>
tales for dark nights. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity. And the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.